Intentionally Disruptive is brought to you by Micro Formulas. Creating solutions that work is what we do. Restoring hope and health is who we are. Visit microformulas.com. A podcast about life. We ready? Everything it can throw at you. <laughs> and how to handle it. Mike's on. Are we ready to go? Real people talking about life's real issues. All right, let's do this. <laughs> this. <laughs> this is Intentionally Disruptive. Because you know I want to ask you some pretty deep questions. With Shauna McNeil. Joining the podcast today is my dear friend, Kara Lee. Now, the series this month is called Me 2.0, Can I Get a Rewrite? Now, this is all about starting over. So, so far, we've covered career change, life after divorce. This is episode number three of the series, and it's called I Started from the Bottom and Now I'm Here. Now, this title describes Kara Lee's story perfectly. I mean, we're talking drug addiction, prison time, losing custody of a child, I'm so grateful that you decided to come on the podcast and share your story for the very first time. And I kind of wanted to start from the beginning, and that's your childhood. So I was born into an LDS family. Um, My mom and dad were sealed in the temple before they had me. And it was interesting because within the first two years, my parents ended up getting divorced. And um, my dad actually ended up getting with a man and chose that lifestyle. And my mom came back to Boise. So I had my dad living in Salt Lake and then my mom here in Boise. So yeah, my mom. How did you feel though? I've been going back to whenever it was like, hey, my parents are divorcing. Divorce is traumatizing. I mean, that's tough. And so how were you feeling? How did you really feel that? How old were you at the time? I was two. So I was two. So you didn't didn't really know. Yeah, Yeah, I wasn't really affected. For me, that was such a young age. I was like, cool, I get two Christmases. Two Christmases, like, <laughs> two, <laughs> two birthdays. birthdays yeah, you know? right, right. And it definitely wasn't strange for me. But as you got older, I mean, were you picking up on, you know, oh my gosh, like this is my life. Like, how did that affect you? So I think the oddest thing for me and, and a memory that sticks out is my dad sitting me down at, at the time. It's the 90s. And so, you know, the fact that he was gay was a very hush-hush thing in that time frame. And so I remember him sitting me down, and I was probably eight at the time. And he was like, so I need to tell you something. I like men. And at that age, I, again, didn't understand. So yeah. I was like, okay, cool. Not a big deal. Not a big All deal. Right, I get Okay. And um, I think my mom was definitely pressuring him into telling me these things. And it was good because I, I needed to know them. And I, But I think the hardest thing was on her and experiencing that and so there was a lot of pain you know oh, absolutely and you, you feel like that impacted you I mean during your I mean obviously because she's your mother I mean yeah and I care yeah absolutely care about and her. seeing her going through yeah. that pain has got to be difficult yeah and it wasn't so much the divorce and everything I I will tell you probably the most traumatic things in my life happened when I was nine and ten years old so at that point in time, my dad had a kidney disease and his kidneys were failing. At the same time that his kidneys failed, he was 32, I was diagnosed with the same disease. And that was super scary. So here I am watching my dad's health deteriorate and I'm nine years old and I've got the same issue. So I'm thinking, okay, I've got a couple decades <laughs> before this happens to me. Two years later, I end up losing my father. And um, I was traveling 
to see him. I'm sorry. No, please uh, don't. No, yeah. take your time. So I was traveling to see him for Thanksgiving, and I just remember every holiday that I would go there, I'd have so much fun. Uh-huh. He would spoil me. We'd go to all sorts of places. And the last year, which was in 1999, he took me to Disneyland. And at the time his kidneys had failed, um, he was disabled. And so the coolest thing for me at nine year old brain, right, is we got to skip the Disney lines, right? Oh, Go yeah. on all the rides. Oh, yeah, right. It was it was the coolest thing. Um but yeah, that that Thanksgiving, um I was saying that I with him, we literally had the night before gone to see how the Grinch stole Christmas because that was in the theaters. We ate at Cracker Barrel and um, went home and woke up at 3 a.m. to the sound of hiccups in the other room. And, like, seriously, uh, uh, right? So I walk in, and my dad's sitting on the edge of the bed, and he's convulsing purple in the face. And so I run to his partner's room, which was Kelly, and I'm like, Kelly, something's wrong with dad. So Kelly wakes up goes into dad's room and he's like Kara call 911 and I'm like okay <laughs> well I know the, yeah. how to dial 911 right. but how is you how do you as a child know what to do so the lady that answers you know dispatch she's asking me all these questions I'm visiting I don't know the address to my dad's house <laughs> I don't know the things that she's asking me to tell her and so I go outside I try to find the house number I try to yeah. answer her questions and I couldn't help Later, when reflecting on it, thinking that it was my fault because, you know, the ambulance didn't get there in time. So he actually passed away with you at the house. Yeah. So oh, my gosh. Once I, got, once I got that information to the lady, she stayed on the phone with me. I went inside, and my dad's on the floor at this point in just purple. And I finally hear, like, the ambulance sirens. So I run out. I'm like, he's here. He's here telling him to come in and they weren't able to resuscitate him and I had to call my mom at 4 a.m. our time and say you know dad's dead and I remember flying back and what was super ironic is there was somebody that was a friend of the family on that flight sitting right next to me what a coincidence for that person to be there and we talk about diving into your faith. I mean, <laughs> yeah. right there, like that person was meant to be there. Yeah, exactly. For you. And, you know, when you look back and, and you see all these divine intervention points yeah. in your life, yeah, like he's there, he's with you all the way. And, um, but yeah, uh, that was the biggest thing because here I am at 10 years old, knowing in my heart that I'm going to die when I'm 34, like my dad, because I have the same condition. So um, that was that was the hardest thing for me in my childhood, um, coming home after that Thanksgiving and nothing was the same. How did you cope with that? How did your mom, you know, because again, there's no, you know this, you're a parent. There's, we don't, we <laughs> yeah. don't have a book. There, there's no instructions on how to raise a child. It's completely, I mean, we are just doing the best we can every single day. And the moment in your pain and in your sorrow, you don't, all the time, we don't have the right answers. Even if on a good day, we don't have the right answer. Like, oh, why did we do that? Oh, stupid. But what, how did you, I guess, how did your mom handle that 
um, as far as like obviously you witnessing your father passing away all the changes at a very young age what happened once you got home now were you in did you go to therapy so I went back to school um, after that Thanksgiving break and I remember my teacher announcing it like it was everybody's business <laughs> oh my god yeah that yeah. was that oh. was so awesome um but through that I ended up getting involved with like school counselor and you know working through the grief book because they had a, yeah. a therapy grief book and, and things like that um so I did I, you know it's the free option and right. and my mom did an awesome job trying to keep me involved with my dad's family they actually lived in Ohio and so uh we took a trip um in my preteens to go to Ohio and see my dad's family literally right after that trip my uncle passed away the one I just visited and bonded oh, with <laughs> and um you're just like why why me well Probably, and I mean, this at that seems point. to be a pattern when I look back at my childhood is like I would bond with somebody and then they would pass away, away. <laughs> so man death in itself was probably a hard one for me it's like you there's like five devastating things that happen to someone and I think you've hit almost every single one of them before <laughs> you were an adult yeah I mean yeah. that is just you literally now are probably the the strongest person I know I mean like <laughs> I, obviously I didn't know all of this I mean I know a little bits and pieces of your story um but I mean I I just can't like I I love you and think you're the strongest person now more than I ever have and you know I just I cannot believe you went through all of that before what? What was that? 13, 14? Before 13. And I actually had a pretty normal childhood as far as the teenage years go. I mean, it was really, I was in the dance team. I was doing normal child things. And my stepdad probably was the best role model I could have asked for. And I, would, I don't, wouldn't say replacement, but he was definitely the father figure, yeah. the best that I could have asked for because yeah. he, he... He owned the role. He did. Yeah, and then he, he also like showed me what it was to be you know a hard worker and, and those things. And my mom was very like there for the cooking and stuff. So I really had two parents, even though I lost my dad. And so I'm grateful for that. But it was, it was pretty normal. Do you feel like you, looking back on it now as an adult, do you feel like you processed it in a healthy way? I mean, do you feel like now looking back on it, you could have, there could have been something different that you were, you had helped you process. Cause I know for me, I, I'm a, I'm a child of, I had childhood trauma. You know, I was physically abused myself and mentally abused. And when I reflect and look back on that, I basically just had school. Like, you know, when you talk about the school counselor and things. And now as an adult, as I reflect, I'm like, man, I definitely, I held on to all those things and all those feelings and emotions because growing up in my house, if you shared an emotion, because I had to be the caretaker of my mom, I was like the one taking care of her. And so if I were to show emotion, that would be wrong because I have to be the strong one in yeah. the relationship, and I, you know? I think that was just kind of culturally our norm, you know? Uh, yeah. Because same situation, like every time I did show emotion, it was like, through anger you know and then I was sent to my room so you're exactly right yeah and no fault of anyone's because I would probably do the same thing to my son like if he's acting out right right absolutely but um 
I don't think I, I processed it in a healthy way at the time because I just kind of kept shoving it down. Shoving it down, yeah. And, and, I would, and it manifested, obviously, yeah. as it, it kind of, you know, showed its ugly head as you mm-hmm. got older. And I found shopping as kind of my outlet. I would shop. I also had kind of a minor eating disorder, you know, when I was in high school. Um, kind of gaining, I think, yeah. what comes from control, you and know. And there were a group of friends, too, that, you know, would exchange pills and stuff at school, like in an Advil bottle. Nobody knew what they were. Diet pills or? Just like pain pills. Oh. Like it was just kind of this hidden thing at school. So like I would numb, you know, and. So you you started doing that at what age? Oh, I think I was 16 or 17. But um, it wasn't a problem really. I mean, you 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 shouldn't have been doing it, but it wasn't like something that kind of consumed your life at that time. Right. No. And um, I didn't really start using until later on. One thing you'll need to know is I, at 20, uh, I lost probably the most important person in my life. Um, The final death that kind of pushed it over the edge for me is uh, my grandmother because she was the sweetest girl never cursed in her life (laughs) like she was your calm she she was and she was the glue that tied the family together and she was just like this charity just ball of charity and love and just made everything better like you go to her house and everything's better like there's no problems in the world right she ended up getting cancer when i was 20 and within a year, went from stage one to stage four, and she passed away that January. And I was so devastated. I went into this depression where I, um, I quit my job. And now, so when did you meet your, your son's father? Right when um, she had passed. So how long did you guys stay together? We were together three years. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was quite a, a long run. Um, well, at least for relationships in my life before that, it had been like, two years you know yeah so so when did things start going downhill was it before your son was born or after so yes it was before my son was born I was using um I was using uh Norco's basically oxys any so pain medicine pain medicine that I could get my hands on for one kidney pain was a huge thing too um but also just the emotional pain right um were you on any prescription medication for your kidney disorder Okay. Nope. It was all under the table. Friend of a friend had it. And I remember thinking, I'm going to die anyway at 30. I don't really care what I put in my body at this point because I better just enjoy life while I can. Right. Yeah. And enjoying life was <laughs> for me at the time. Yeah, yeah. 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 It makes I, it all go away. I had totally isolated from my family and I hadn't talked to my mom or stepdad in a really long time. I found out that I was pregnant and that moment I was like, okay, I got to stop. And I did. I quit smoking. I quit using (laughs) prescription meds and I actually ended up miscarrying that first pregnancy. And I really want to have a child. Are you wanting to do this with me? You know, I want this before I, I go, you know, and he was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm ready. Um, you, guys totally <laughs> were, you guys were not ready. <laughs> we're not ready. No. But in that, in that situation, it's like all you're thinking about is yourself. Yeah, you know? absolutely. 
and, and it's something else to numb the pain and, yeah. ke- and keep your, your mind off of what you're really needing to work on and that's yourself and your mental health because absolutely. I mean a baby's gonna cover up all the problems too <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean like yeah, as that's, a young person absolutely. that's, what you, yeah, that's yeah. what you think and we were not ready but we told each other we were ready and we got pregnant again and so I'm like doing awesome you know being sober and he fixed that for me well I ended up leaving because I felt myself relapsing with him so I left probably a month after Tossie was born yeah we had a a big falling out and we just didn't agree on values and and things that we needed to set for our child and so I moved back in with my mom and my stepdad and you're talking to them again talking to them again yeah. because the baby's here they yeah, came yeah. they can help like, out too <laughs> they can help out you know and I was like okay I just need to get my stuff together right so I did really well for a while I ended up leaving my parents house getting a really good job at a call center got my own place so it was a little two-bedroom apartment so I was able to do it and I was doing well and I met somebody at work and he had been a recovering addict. He didn't want that life anymore. And that's kind of And what... he had a child that was two weeks apart from my son. And so we start hanging out and it's kind of perfect. You, you have know? so much in common. Yeah. yeah. And um, fast forward to 2015, we ended up getting rear-ended by a police officer um, in a car accident by that time we're living together we have everything invested in a relationship together and we're ready to start this blended family and this car accident kind of threw a wrench in everything because my ex now had been a previous user of heroin and when he wanted to numb that car accident pain he started you guys are injured you were injured, yeah, injured in the yeah, accident. Yeah. And so obviously they, they prescribe pain medication. They did for a while. Um, and then once that like was gone. Like a two-week yeah. period, yeah. right? And once that was gone. Now, I didn't know right away. Uh, he would disappear for like hours at a time. And I was like, are you cheating on me? What's going on? Like I'd be at the chiropractor and he'd be off doing something else. So I'm like, what in the world? Well, and he finally came to me and told me, I'm using again. And I made the worst decision I could have ever made in my life. And I told him, I would rather you bring it home than be out and about. I say that's the worst decision because I brought that into my space. I brought it into my son's space. Let's take a little break (laughs) right there. We'll take a little break. We'll collect our thoughts. Uh, We'll hear from our Microformulas life coach, Sarah Fisk. We'll be right back. Hold up. Here's one thing you need to know. Hi, this is Sarah Bybee Fisk, Microbe Formulas life coach with one thing you need to know about overcoming addiction and starting again. Everyone has an emotion that they love to feel. Sometimes it's hope or determination or confidence or brave Those emotions come from the way we think about ourselves. So if you have the thought, it's never too late for me to start over, that might give you hope. If you have the thought, I can do this, that might give you confidence. Our thinking creates our feelings. 
And so anytime we are trying to get out of a situation that we don't want anymore or reinvent ourselves and kind of take the next step in the direction that we want, it's really important to pay attention to how we are thinking about ourselves because it produces our feelings and our feelings fuel our action. So pick a feeling. What do you like to feel? And ask yourself, what do I think that produces this feeling for me? Because if it's hope or confidence or determination or anything else, you can create that feeling for yourself by how you are thinking. It's got you thinking, doesn't it? You're like, give me more. This is Intentionally Disruptive with Shauna McNeil. All right, so Carolee, let's pick up where we left off. And that was you're dating this guy. He is a recovered addict, getting back into heroin. And you tell him the one sentence that completely changed your life. And that was? Um, Instead of being out and about, I'd rather you bring it home. And yeah, that was the worst thing I could have done in looking back at at that because you know as he you know started into his addiction like he would be in the bathroom and you know pretty soon it went to when the kids are asleep I'll bring it out into the you know living room and then you know I've been able to quit things before so it must be pretty easy you know let me try it and then I can show you how easy it is to quit we'll quit together major flaws in thinking and once it had been a a couple months into his use I started using with him and smoking it and at that time just the one time I wasn't able to put it down um again every day I'd be looking forward to when the kids go to bed yeah and pretty soon it turned into okay when else can I fit it in you know all while they're at daycare before we go pick them up And then it went to like every 30 minutes, I'd have to have something. And then my use just kept gradually increasing because heroin's different than a a lot of other drugs and it makes you dependent on it in in bodily functions. Like you cannot stay awake without a hit. Mm -hmm. You cannot take your children to the park you can't cook dinner. You can't do anything. It's like the worst enslavement possible because in order to function and not get sick, because without it, yeah. too, you basically can't do anything without it. And you're sick if you don't have it. Like literal chills, like flu-like symptoms, like all you want to do is get better. So how do you get better? By buying more, buying more and buying more. Pretty soon, your whole bank account's dr- withdrawn you can't afford diapers for your children you can't afford food so you get on welfare because that's what people do is you can't afford things you go to welfare because the government will pay for it were you still working (laughs) at this time i was yeah i was a supervisor of a team of 14 agents at wds at the time which was a call center for verizon and nobody had a clue i was (laughs) hiding it so well or at least i thought i was yeah that I would be able to take my smoke breaks, go out to my car, use, oh, come so back you're in. doing this at work. Yeah. Do one-on-ones with my agent until I couldn't afford it. And then I'd be nodding off at work. I'd be getting sick at work. And people were like, oh my gosh, she's really sick. And guess what I'd do? I'd blame it on my kidney disease. 
perfect cop-out. Yeah. Hiding it so well. I remember the night when the police showed up. And two weeks prior to that, I was just so done with using. And I had talked to my my guy a couple times about quitting. Like, let's, let's get out of this. Let's stop. And, you know, at that time, in order to afford our habit, we'd started selling it in massive quantities. And this was two weeks before the cops got there. Yeah. So two weeks before the cops arrived, I'm like on my knees after I sang my son to sleep. I literally remember singing a church primary song to him that night. And it was a song that I grew up with. And it made me want to pray. And I did. I went into my bedroom. I hit my knees. I was like, God, please take this. Take this from me and can you please make sure nothing bad happens? <laughs> like somehow just make it stop. Yeah. And so that night, two female officers came to our front door. And I was just so done, you know, I let them in. And they took everything. And they were so, like, I couldn't have asked for two better police officers. Yeah. <laughs> because... One was entertaining our kids, playing with them, and the other one was calmly, like, going through the process, just the general, like, okay, this is what's going to happen, you know. They put us in cuffs and took us away, and at the time, I'm like, this is not good. (laughs) This is not the best thing that could have happened, you know. And looking back, those police officers saved my life. (laughs) They saved my ex's life. And my children, well, and I say children because there was a a baby girl, you know, that I cared deeply for. (laughs) But, yeah, it it was the best worst thing that could have ever happened. But when they took us in, um, I had no idea the charges I'd be facing. I was like, okay, well, it's going to be a couple months in jail, whatever. You had no idea. And... I had no idea the crime I was committing, the magnitude, because it carried with it a mandatory minimum sentence for the amount I had of 15 years to life. And so when I heard that, my my whole world, like, just caved in. I'm like, my son's going to be 18 by the and time where, where I get out. Where was your kid when you were going through your trial and things like that? Where Where was your son? So... He was with his dad and also with my aunt and uncle. So my aunt and uncle kind of took my place in the 50-50 custody portion. um, They were really awesome that way, my aunt and uncle and then Tanner. When we were doing our, because obviously you and I have talked a few times before we recorded this podcast. And um, (laughs) I I actually called my mom. I'm I'm getting choked up because I called my mom and I said, mom, I um I met this girl at work and her name's Carolee and I pray to God because my sister suffers from heroin addiction and I was like I pray to God that she gets busted because I want her to, to be I want I want I want the same thing to happen to her that happened to you um because she 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 started out the same exact way she had she was shot three times by a family member 
over custody of her daughter. It was this whole big mess. It made national news. It was it was just crazy. Well, to deal with the numbing and the PTSD and the pain from all of that, she was on pain medication. She was in the hospital for a month. She never dealt with everything mentally. So that pain pill addiction led to heroin. Yeah. And she almost every time <laughs> yeah, she her children. She her son was born with an addiction. Um, she doesn't have custody of any of her kids. She her teeth are like gravel and and she, she just she doesn't have power at her house. I mean, it's it's awful. It's like the worst story ever. And it kills me to see her that way. And I just I go, Mom, I just wish that the same thing would happen. You know, I yeah. just it kills me. And I can't even I, I I've even kidnapped her. I've even kidnapped her, literally set her up so I could take her to a hospital and get her help. And I, my sister's beating me in the face the whole time on the way up to the hospital. And I'm like, I'm crying and I'm driving, trying to get her there to get her help. And the therapist came out and they're like, you know what? She doesn't need the help. You do. And I jumped up out of my seat going to fight that girl. I, I was going to fight the therapist. Like, how dare you? She has track marks on her, on her arms she's suicidal she's she's at her lowest point what do you mean i need help like you need help on how to deal and how to have an addict as a family member and how you you they're the only ones they they need to want to help themselves you can't do you can't control it you can't do this and it to save your family and you as a person you need the help and i went into therapy and things like that but every single day my, my mom's in turmoil my mom has custody of her kids and she has you know bad health as you know herself and my sister is still like she's right where you are and it seems like she's never gonna i'm like why why aren't any why isn't anybody why aren't the cops knocking at her door why is this not happening why is this taking so long you know my mom has called the cop my, we've tried and she's still in the same position and I just, I feel like her, her end is near and it kills me. So when I met you and that's why I so much wanted you to share your story on this podcast because it was so inspiring. And I thought, God, I just wish she could be just like Carolee. And, um, I don't know. I, I'm glad oh. I brought the dishes. In yeah, <laughs> I'm glad too. You know, um, a lot of it does come down to personal choice which sucks i've seen so many people so incarceration you see a lot of people come off the street yeah right? i'm sure Who yeah are in your sister's situation right where the, all they're thinking about is the next fix they've got track marks and everything that's all she cares about doesn't care about her kid i mean nothing she's seems so far gone beyond repair yeah and i'm just waiting for the call i'm yeah. just waiting for it it's such a hard thing because even people who are taken off the street say they're clean for six months Yeah, in incarceration. The, as soon as they're out, whether they go back because, for one, they can't get a place that's... Yeah. You don't get to rent a place that's felon-friendly that doesn't have druggies. You know, you don't get a good job. So you're stuck with a low wage. So the only way you can make money is to sell drugs again. Yeah, Like, it's a vicious cycle and you have to have one it's got to come from you and a good support so you're going to be there if and when she i hope she does oh, i pray i and I'm, I'm not an uber religious person mm. but i pray every day like i i, I see you every day and I, I was like man that could be my sister that could be her you know yeah so you're facing 15 years of life oh my gosh that was the worst <laughs> your kid is your kid is split between the father and your aunt and uncle yeah 
sentence happens, what do you end up oh, getting? Oh, it was not that fast. Oh, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Yeah. Um, so the court process takes a long time. And a lot of people are able to bond out and buy their time, get a lawyer, you know, be out on the street when the sentencing happens. So they only have to serve after their sentence. In my case, because of the amount I had, there was no bond. So I wasn't able to get out. I was stuck in there until I was sentenced, which happened to be a time of nine months. Stuck not knowing what was gonna what's happen. gonna happen, how long I'd be in prison. And it was to life. So I could literally be, be in prison for the rest of your life. Not see my son. Were you regretting praying for something that night? Gosh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like, well, maybe, maybe I wanted something, but not this long. But I think what was the, the strangest thing is when I got pulled off the street, right? They don't have anything to put you on to kind of lessen the withdrawals. Yeah. So I'm sitting there. I remember banging my head against the cement wall, trying to get the headaches to go away. Uh, shivering without any blankets <laughs> because you're, you're given like this little sheet, yeah. right? And the only thing I could do was think about God. God's the only person that would have any type of mercy in this situation. And it was such a turn of events because I literally had almost gone to the point of atheism. And I just put all my faith in him at that moment. I asked my mom to send me scriptures and they were allowed like two books, I think, on our property. And so she sent me scriptures and, you know, I I just started reading it. It was all like, it was like, I had never been able to understand the King James Version of the Bible at all. The these, the house, the, you know, right. those types of things. And it was like, it was unfolding like a story to me. And it was just a, such a ter- crazy turn of events because all I did was think about my son, for one, and read scripture and pray. That's it. And I was looked at awfully weird in jail, almost ostracized because I wasn't like, they were in the wrong mindset. They were looking at you like you were the crazy one. Yeah. Yeah. But I was scared. And um, I also asked my mom to send me a journal and I started writing that every day. Um, Just like my- You brought your journal in. I did. (laughs) That's a big journal. That's a lot. Yeah, it's jam-packed with letters I got from loved ones when I was in, um, photos that they sent in of my son as he was growing up without me there. Um, Just different memories of the conversations that I had with my son over the phone calls that I was able to speak with him. My ex didn't want me to even talk to Tazi for like the first month I was incarcerated. I went from seeing my son every day to not seeing my son at all not talking to him having no idea how he's doing I wrote my first conversation with him down and he was three uh and I was like how are you doing you know he's like I'm playing Legos you know I was like that's so awesome and he's like you don't have Legos because <laughs> like, he knew that I was yeah. in also, he knew, but so I ex- maybe not understood it. I explained to him that I was in timeout. You know when you make a bad decision and, and mommy puts you in the corner? Well, mommy made a very, very bad decision. And I'm going to be in trouble for a long time. I'll be in timeout for a long time. And I'm thinking at the time, 15 years. <laughs> right. Oh, so you hadn't got your sentence at this time. Oh, no. <laughs> when did the, so when did the sentence happen? 
so I was I had to wait for nine months before I was sentenced so my first nine months of incarceration I was at Ada County jail and um I was trying to do everything to pass the time because I knew it was going to be a while before I got there so instead of like playing cards and board games that people do I tried to find out like what I could be doing that was useful and like productive and um I found out that there was an honor dorm that you could go to and you had to be within certain requirements like no write-ups or no contraband no nothing for a certain amount of time and then you can apply to move in there but there was only like 30 beds in that honor dorm and so you had to be like on your best behavior and and so it took me about three months to get into that honor dorm and that qualified me for jobs around the jail and classes that I could take to fill up the time um and so I got a job once I was in the honor dorm sewing. I'd never sewn before in my life. That's where you're sewing. Okay. <laughs> That's where my sewing came from. Yes. Yeah. You make you make costumes for us here at the at the office. Yes. Yeah. And uh Miss Ruby, she was so awesome. She's one of the deputies there at the jail. And she takes eight girls into an office and they sew uniforms for the jail. So they're handmade. They also do project lioness, so they donate quilts to uh, people in the community who've gone through traumatic like children who've been in a fire or, yeah. you know those types of things and so that was really an awesome thing to do you know in that time and I also you know took as many classes as were available um, I took an addiction recovery class I took um, I think anger management like anything that, <laughs> that yeah. I could to fill the time and there was a lot of good things that came out of that and you know realizing where I wanted to be but I did I went to sentencing oh that was the scariest thing I'm sitting in because you're still thinking 15 years of life that's where your head's at I'm sitting in there um basically waiting and my lawyer had told me that you know because of first-time offense they would lower the mandatory minimum not get rid of it all the way but they were going to drop the charge down to the lowest mandatory minimum as a first-time offender and I I was like are you kidding me and he's like there's a possibility that the judge will still give you 15 years to life but at least the charge will be lowered and I was like oh my gosh (laughs) And I had a public defender, so it wasn't anything. Oh, yeah. So you're, oh, my gosh. My entire life is in this man's hands yeah. or a woman. And nine months of praying. <laughs> and I go to sentencing, and this judge, she, a female judge, and she had so much mercy on me and gave me a three-year mandatory minimum sentence with indeterminate time, you know, afterwards. So I... Uh, <laughs> did you get the credit for the nine months that you spent? I did. Oh, you did. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. And I I remember going back in shackles to the waiting room at the courthouse and just hitting my knees and crying <laughs> because yeah. I was like, no way. You know, and it was, it was just a huge blessing because now my son would be six when I got out and I won't miss his whole life. Just three more years. It wasn't as big of a deal. (laughs) It's still a big deal, but... When you got into prison, I mean, what was that like? I mean, obviously, I mean, I I couldn't imagine. I mean, that would just be terrifying to begin. I mean, because here you are going from one... It's like boom, 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 all at once. You're like, oh my gosh, now you're transitioning to prison. And what was that like? 
it was really scary um for me just because I am not like a really tough girl <laughs> like I'm you're tougher than you think <laughs> I was so intimidated by a lot of women in in there um just rough yeah. women who aren't in the mindset I want to better my life like yeah. <laughs> right uh especially the first facility I went to so there's three different categories of facilities so you have the maximum medium and minimum custody facilities well when you're first sentenced you go to maximum and that's where every really bad criminal is you yeah. know murders you know rapists like just it's, my mom was a prison guard at a maximum <laughs> security prison. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And I was put in a behavioral unit because they didn't have any available spots because the, the prisons right now are so packed. Like they literally have to have boats to sleep in because there's no facilities, yeah. you know, with beds open. So um, I'm in a behavioral unit, which means people with mental problems, right? They don't rationalize. They've got... I don't want to say mental handicaps, but it's like that. Where mental disorders. Yes. Yeah. Um, and they're like screaming at walls and just craziness. And it oh, was... So they're like psychiatric patients, basically. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you would think they would have like a certain hospital for that, but no. it's prison? Are you kidding yeah. me? Anyway, it was super, super nerve wracking because I got there and like I'm in a cell with somebody and there's no curtain around the toilet. Like they see what you got and you see what they got. And yeah. it's just, it's all right there. It's out in the yeah. open. Yeah. And that was, <laughs> that was crazy. Um, but again, there were ways to get into the honor facilities, like minimum security. So after a certain amount of time, good behavior, you get to move down if your points are low enough and you get to a medium custody. So there was a couple months where I was in max and then I moved to medium custody, which is out CUNA where uh, the men's prison yeah, is, is here in Idaho, yeah. as well. And that one was a lot better. Um, still, you're wearing scrubs. You The food's awful. It's like school lunch minus the flavor. Like it's uh, horrible. Ugh. And you can't have any personal stuff, so no makeup, no anything. So you're stuck with facility, like, hand soap to wash your hair with, to wash your body with, and no razors, and just... It's, it's just, just... It's awful. It's the worst. It's the worst. Yeah. Um, but, like, I had nothing to do in those times because they didn't have jobs, they didn't have those things, and long-term residents got jobs. So people with life sentences at max would have the jobs and then people who had long-term sentences at medium would have jobs so there was like hardly anything i did end up like i think it was a year into my sentence i ended up getting a job that would contract out at a farm so i got to leave the facility for a short period of time to go work on a farm and then come back what did you do on the farm so it was, it was like all labor work you know um so we would plant the seeds. We would harvest the crops. I picked, I don't know how many rows of zucchini and strawberries. My back, oh my gosh, it would hurt so bad by the end of the day. And we did get paid. It was 60 cents an hour. 60 cents? 60 cents. It was the only time I could get out. And so I thanked God every time Just I was took working. took advantage of it, absolutely. Because I couldn't see the sun. 
and you're out in the desert in the facility. So when you do get rec time, you're looking at whole bunch of nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how long until you got into the final stage before your release? So the last year, um, I actually ended up getting accepted into what they call the community reentry center. And um, that's a facility where you are able to bunk up at night and go out and work during the day at a regular job. So I ended up going there. Um, it takes you a while to get a job. So waited a couple of months to be eligible. And then I started working at Chipotle. I went in there and you're allowed to like go to the DI and get a suit for an yeah. interview and, and stuff like that. And so I did. And when I walked in there, um, like he wanted to hire me on the spot. I don't know what it was about it. I pulled up in a, a white van with the the prison license plate and he's just I guess the interview went well because he's like yeah sure <laughs> um and I'm really grateful for that opportunity I was the first one at that Chipotle to have ever come from the EBCRC so that was really good and during the the remainder of my time I was able to use my paychecks to pay off my fine and any outstanding stuff that I had to take care of you know before I was released so my fine was $10,000. And when I got out in September of last year, I had ended up paying my fine down to where I only had like four four grand okay. left. So I I put everything I, I had, you had into that account. Into that. And I, I was also required to pay child support when I was in. So, so let's talk about the release. I mean, because again, I go back to just how incredible you are as a person and how much I just admire you. And I think you're so brave and it floors me that this all just happened. You were just released a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Oh, let me go back. <laughs> um, you know, I had been looking forward it, to it for a while. Um, outside of the job, I was also doing a lot inside the facility to try to help better the women because a lot of them just want to get out and go use again, right? So I started this Toastmasters club in in the prison and um, started to do everything I could to kind of just be ready for release. So I was like productive, you yeah, know. Yeah, it sounds like um, it, yeah. I mean, from the beginning you were. I was super excited, you know, to, to be released. I remember the first night I got out sleeping in a real bed was Glorious. heaven because i've been on a, pooping without somebody watching you do it yeah that was probably another <laughs> another good thing yeah yeah, yeah I mean, exactly showering in a real yeah. shower um taking a bath the little things oh that we gosh. take advantage of it's the Having, little things you know being able to go on a walk yeah like there are so many things that we do take for granted yeah. you know i can't decide what i eat what i wear where i go i i can't do anything you know, I'm literally property of the state. They tell me. You can have a real slice of pizza, no more cafeteria <laughs> pizza. <laughs> yeah. The school pizza. Ugh. And so it was, I think the best thing was seeing my son. You know, I did have visits in, when I was in the CRC. They allowed every two weeks to see your kids and stuff. No conjugal business doesn't, doesn't happen. That's only in the movies. Oh, that, that, that's a myth. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the... It was the hardest thing when I was in because he would come and he's like, can you come home? Almost every week I'd have to explain, almost, almost. You're still in timeout. 
Yeah. And um, there were, it was the hardest thing after those visits because he he would cry. Like, why can't you come home, Mom? <laughs> You're right here. I can touch you. I can feel you. But you can't come with me. <laughs> the car's right there. You can't come sit with me <laughs> um and by the way we're almost through an entire box of tissues we've had to take breaks we've had to collect our thoughts tissues are all over the studio here the last three months of incarceration you're granted furloughs um, where you can leave the facility for certain amounts of time and they're gradual so you get like the first one's four hours the second one's six hours and the last one's eight hours and so i remember the first one i took was in August for Tossie's first day of school. And this was before COVID. So it was like almost the perfect time. time. And I took him and that was the best, <laughs> best day because. And I'm um, sure he was so excited. Yeah. Like he, mama mom's with me. He was. Yeah. And then um, it was just kind of gradual and easy. There was a big anxiety um, being locked up for three years and then getting out into the real world there's a huge anxiety like am I gonna relapse like you know all this clean time means nothing if the first thing I go out and do is look for a hit you know and so I did a lot of step work the 12-step program Uh to prevent that (laughs) and even today you know I've been out for a year but I consistently work on myself Mm -hmm. so that I'm not ever tempted to go back. I mean, that would just be the worst. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in, I, we actually talked about this. I think when you and I, we did a shopping day one day, and you mentioned that you're on probation. Yeah. And for how long? Um, I have four years left. And I find this interesting, and maybe we have to cut this out, and we can't even talk about it, but <laughs> with probation, I mean, you can't even have a relationship with anyone. No. Like, and I mean, romantically, you can't have a relationship. But no. I didn't realize this. I was floored when you told me that, because they obviously want you to stay in the right headspace. You don't want anything, any distractions that could cause any type of relapse or you know, yeah. you getting into trouble again. So what has that been like? I mean, because if, if you get romantically involved with someone, you're breaking the rules. Yeah, it's been really hard. Um, I've had several conversations with my aunt and my family about it. Um, because there's times when you're just so lonely. <laughs> and, you know, your family can't help with it. You want a husband. You want to further your life that way. And you're stuck. Like, <laughs> yeah. four years from now, I'm going to be... 35 <laughs> yeah. and he wants to marry a 35 year old but you're gonna be a hot 35 year old <laughs> i can tell you that well, i appreciate <laughs> it but it's just that's hard um and just the stipulations like i'm still not a free person like if i leave the fourth district i have to get permission slip to like travel and you know, the obvious things, you know, no drinking, no drugs. That's easy for me. It's those little caveats. Like, I can't. They're constant <laughs> reminders. Have a relationship. Oh, yeah. and being on parole is horrible when you're trying to find a house. Like, to rent. You can't rent a house if you're a felon in a good neighborhood. You basically are limited to the drug neighborhoods, the low income. Like, I could have all the money in the world. It wouldn't matter. Wouldn't matter because I have that felony. So unless I know somebody who has a place to rent, 
It's so difficult. So your current state, you you have custody of your son. No. You don't have custody of your son uh-huh. yet. So um, I had to sign my custody right. over when I got arrested. And when I did that, um, there was a stipulation in the custody agreement that said I had to be sober for a year. I had to not be in a relationship. There were so many different things in there. How often do you see your son? Um, I see him every other week. Like I have him, um, outside of the custody agreement. Like it says visitation only, Yeah, but you want him all the time. <laughs> you want him all the time. Yeah. He's your baby. Yeah. So, so, I mean, today here you are, you have a great job. You have a great support team with your friends and your family. I know your cousin Rachel came in today just to be support for you, which is yeah. huge. I mean, that's key right there. But, um, are you, how you feel present day as, an addict I feel awesome <laughs> in a way because the addiction's not even in my mind anymore um, I work at a company that's all about detox and recovery and health and so that really helps because I'm around like-minded people finding the best way to be healthy right and there's no drugs <laughs> that's yeah. probably the best part because you you go get a job at any other place and you're bound to run into somebody who's using. And it's just awesome here <laughs> because everybody wants to be sober. Yeah. And as a felon, I just want to give hope to other people. I mean, if you can find people that are better than you and like Ryan says, convince them that you're worth it, it wor- will work out. I mean, it's all mental mindset right absolutely and if other people would just kind of focus inward a little bit and and think about their mindset and their approach I love Sarah Fisk because she literally will turn so why why are you thinking of it like that you know in like oh I'm kind of disabling myself by you know limiting my goals and aspirations and stuff and and Sarah Fisk just in case anybody you know listening Sarah Fisk is uh, the micro formulas life coach and she is incredible we feature her on every single podcast she's amazing and I know you mentioned Ryan I think it's important because I again Kara Lee and I work together um, and you know I'm a, the director of public relations for the company and you obviously work in the customer care department mm-hmm. uh, the CEO of our company Ryan Riley you know, I have conversations with him often, and he's the best. I mean, he really is. He, a couple po- a couple of weeks ago during a podcast, I was talking about all we really need is somebody to believe in us. Yeah, and Ryan was and he, that. And he, yeah, me that too. Person for he, me. he was my person too. Absolutely. I'll tell you, like I, <laughs> when I came in for the first interview, I didn't make the cut, and I got a second interview, and I, I finally did. And Ryan told me once, he's like. I know where you came from. I know your story and I know who you are. And that's what's most important yeah. is is what what you're doing now, you know? And for us, we're our worst critics and we always relive Absolutely. the past, right? And we were like, okay, well, what if I did this different? Well, the one thing you've got to know is you are in control of only one thing, not the past, not the future. You're in control of now, this moment. So what are you going to do with this moment that will benefit not only you, but everybody around you. This is your moment right now. I think you have inspired everyone listening and you have you have so much more to do in this life and 
I mean, God's on your side. I mean, you talk <laughs> about religious. I mean, he's been on your side from day one down to that plane ride on your way home, you know, after your dad passed away. I mean, he's on your side and you have so much to offer the world and you've helped me. I mean, I have had a meltdown that came out of nowhere. <laughs> I'm just like, wow. Cause you know, you and I've had many conversations and I'm like, you're know, listening to you and I'm holding all those feelings in. Well, boy, they all just came out today. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I probably have mascara all over the place. And I, I thank you for that because I feel like a weight's been lifted off my shoulders that I got those feelings off my chest. And you're gonna do that for so many people because you're an amazing person. Well, Carol Lee is what this podcast is all about. It's everyday people sharing their story, their triumphs, because I mean, we're all broken. Every single one of us are broken and a constant work in progress. And this is all about people helping people. And you've helped me today. And I appreciate you so much. Whoa, hold up. Did you hear? Yeehaw. On the next Intentionally Disruptive with Shauna McNeil. Coming up next week, episode number four of the Me 2.0 Can I Get a Rewrite? Microformula's life coach, Sarah Fisk. She joins the show as we dive into why I have gained 86 pounds in like three years. I'm a mess. And why I'm mentally struggling to work on that every time I start a new life every single week I'm like oh I'll, I'll start my diet on Monday Adam Smasher will also uh, join the show to discuss body image and weight gain from a male perspective ooh that's a little taste of what's to come next week on Intentionally Disruptive this podcast is all about everyday people sharing their story their triumphs because I mean we're all broken every single one of us are broken and a constant work in progress. And this is all about people helping people and you've helped me today. Intentionally Disruptive is presented by Microbe Formulas. Creating solutions at work is what we do. Restoring hope and health is who we are. Visit us at microbeformulas.com.